It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element, Element, Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as ELMNTFM and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's a great pleasure to welcome to the show Maureen Gugu. I have known Maureen for quite some time. used to work with her uh, at the Aboriginal People's Television Network some time ago. Uh, However, we both moved on, and Maureen is also an award-winning journalist from the India Brook First Nation in Nova Scotia. She has worked in news for more than 30 years in media outlets such as the CBC, the Chronicle Herald, and, as I mentioned, APTN, And Maureen is an arts degree in political science from St. Mary's University in Halifax. She's a journalism degree from Ryerson University at Toronto and a master's degree in journalism from Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism in New York City. So Maureen, uh, Sego, Ani, and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, David. Now, of course, we're here because you are uh, based on the East Coast. The East Coast Mi'kmaq fishing uh, issue has been in the news of late, and we wanted to try to get some firsthand uh, information. And uh, I thought of you, and I reached out to you, and I so I really appreciate the fact that you're on the show doing this with us. It's my pleasure. I, I, I think it's important that people know what's going on out here when it comes to um, what's happening on the waters in St. Mary's Bay. Yeah, absolutely. And, of course, we've heard a lot about what's happening. We've heard about some of the confrontation that's been going on between the Indigenous and non-Indigenous fishers. We've heard about the first fishery that started, which I believe was in your own community, and then it it expanded uh, into a second uh, fishery as well. Uh, But can can we get a little bit of a background on this? Can, Can you set us up with that? Oh, this goes way back to 1993. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's when um, the late Donald Marshall Jr. was actually charged by DFO officers for um, for catching and selling eels without a license. This happened in Pomquit Harbor in the Antigonish area way back in 93. Um, he took his case to... Uh, to the Union of Nova Scotia Indians, which which is which is a tribal organization that actually has a legal unit that, and they also have a mandate that if a, a treaty right is at stake, they're bound to defend it. And they thought that Donald Marshall Jr.'s case fit that, so they represented him. They um, took his case to court. Um, he lost in the lower courts in Nova Scotia. Uh, they did find him guilty of violating the Fisheries Act, and he was fined. But both times he appealed the decision, and eventually that actually reached uh, the Supreme Court of Canada. Um, and in September 17, 1999, um, the High Court actually ruled that Donald Marshall Jr. has a treaty right to catch and sell fish for a moderate livelihood and that he didn't need a license. So they overturned his conviction um, and and, and acquitted him. And then that ruling was really significant because throughout the whole court case, he argued that he did have a treaty right. And that was under the peace and friendship treaties that were signed between um, his Mi'kmaq ancestors and the British crown. Um, 
and, and if you look at the peace and friendship treaties, they're basically um, agreements that uh, that you know that they're kind of agreements on how to coexist together, mm. and and it guaranteed that the Mi'kmaq would be able to still continue to to do their traditional activities, which included uh, catching fish and selling fish. Um, so, you know, and that's part of the trade aspect of of the treaties, and. They, they said that those treaties were valid, but they also said that it was for a moderate livelihood. And that's always been a very ambiguous term because the Supreme Court of Canada didn't define what a moderate livelihood is. Mm. So they, they kind of left it up to, uh, I, I, I guess, to the, to the two parties, like the federal government and the Mi'kmaq, to determine and define what does a moderate livelihood mean in today's context. But that never happened. What happened was um, uh, the, the federal government, mainly um, Department of Fisheries and Oceans, um, appointed a negotiator to meet with um, the First Nations that fall under the, the treaty and, uh, and uh, you know, negotiated what they called interim fishing agreements. And what, they, what those agreements said was that we will give you access to the commercial fishery. So they got access, they got various commercial fishing licenses for various species, which include lobster. And they also gave them money to buy boats, to buy gear, um, to train um, young Mi'kmaq people in the community to become fishermen. And they got all that money and in, agree and, and in return, they agreed to follow the, the current commercial fishery seasons that go on here on the East Coast. Mm -hmm. But the key thing with those agreements, they were called interim, which meant mm. at some point, the federal government was going to define a moderate livelihood. And, and a lot of the First Nations who signed those agreements back 20 years ago, thought that was going to happen. Mm. But that didn't happen. And what you're seeing happening today is, is people getting tired of that definition, or that moderate livelihood not being defined. Oh, thank you for explaining that. Can you help also to define this for me? So you have Donald Marshall, who who is represented here and and goes to court. But then, as you as you mentioned, it it then falls to the community. the 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 federal government is negotiating with the with the communities and the First Nations in the area. So why was Donald there representing himself rather than a community? And why were the, where were the communities and what were they doing during this? Do you know? Well, basically, the Union of Nova Scotia Indians is a tribal organization that represents about half of the Mi'kmaq communities in Nova Scotia. The other tribal organization is the Confederacy of Mainland Mi'kmaq. Mm. And both of uh, the lawyers for both of the tribal organizations joined together to represent Junior. So in a sense, I, I should say... Everyone calls Donald Marshall Jr. Jr. <laughs> around here, so sometimes <laughs> right. I, I tend to say that. But Donald Marshall Jr. Um, they they used to to say that because he is, um, you know, that he is Mi'kmaq, that he's he's a member of the Member Two First Nation, mm. which is part of the U Union of Nova Scotia Indians. That um, that because his treaty right is at stake, all Mi'kmaq people's treaty right is at stake, and that's how they came together to represent him. So he wins this case and he is allowed and, and, and then the this this rolls out, as you said, the government uh, gives them money. Uh, they're able to buy nets. They're able to buy the, the fishing gear they need, some boats. You would think that that would establish. Uh, but the, but like you said, they were following the regular uh, fishing season. 
It's now at this point where nothing has happened. And now they're saying, okay, we have the right to fish uh, outside of the season and we're going to now follow this because these issues haven't been dealt with. Exactly. Um, what what happened was about, well, I, I should take it in, in that period, there have been some Mi'kmaq fishermen who have been fishing for a moderate livelihood. But what DFO has been doing is saying that, you know, we have no regulations for a moderate livelihood. The only regulation we have is for the the food, um, social and ceremonial, uh, the food mm. fishery. Mm. Those are the only regulations. And you're supposed to be fishing under those regulations. And under those regulations, you're not allowed to sell your catch. So this is where a lot of quite a few fishermen throughout the years have been have been charged or they've had their gear seized. Mm. And I, I like about maybe like about five years ago, um, one fisherman from my community, um, Alex McDonald, was actually uh, charged. Um, he they um, they charged him with, uh, you know, catching uh, catching uh, lobster in excess of what the, the food fishery allowed. So they gave him back what he was allowed and then they released the rest of the lobster into St. Mary's Bay. Well, he challenged that court case, challenged the charges and use moderate livelihood as a defense. And after one day of hearings in the Digby courtroom, um, the Crown actually um, served notice that they were no longer pursuing the case at all. So in a sense, they dropped the case. Mm. And now Alex is actually suing DFO for charging him in the first place. Right. So, you know, so, so there's, you know, there's that. And, and, and he's kind of representative of quite a few. But, you know, in in late 2017, DFO appointed another federal negotiator to meet with First Nations with the objective of defining what a moderate livelihood is. Mm. That's how those talks were um, introduced. And from my understanding is that the negotiator had met with most of the First Nations in the region that fall under the Peace and Friendship Treaty of 1760 and 61. However, um, for the Nova Scotia chiefs, those talks reached an impasse earlier this year um, because they're, they're seem, they, they seem to be on uh, two different sides of the, of the table. Um, the, the Mi'kmaq chiefs in Nova Scotia had, had an anticipation that moderate livelihood was going to be defined, mm-hmm. whereas the Department of Fisheries and Oceans offered First Nation communities um, I, I guess a deal that that would offer them more money for boats and gear and training um, that would come up to a, a total of uh, $87 million. Right. Um, however, the first nations had to agree that they would agree not to exercise their treaty right for a period of 10 years. And when I spoke with, uh, um, with uh, member two chief, Terry Paul, who is the co-chair of the assembly of Nova Scotia Mi'kmaq chiefs, he said that that requirement that they not practice a treaty right for 10 years was unacceptable. And shortly after that, we started seeing um, First Nation communities like Sebag and Nagadi um, launch their own moderate livelihood fishery. Um, last week, it was the um, Budladek Mi'kmaq Nation in Cape Breton that launched their own uh, moderate livelihood fishery. And when I spoke with uh, Member 2 Chief Terry Paul, uh, he said in the coming weeks, Member 2 is going to be in a similar situation where they're going to be launching their own uh, moderate livelihood fishery. 
How would you say the mood is uh, out there? Um, I would say that the mood is ones of, um, you know, it, it's a sense of frustration that I'm getting from people. Um, there's, there's always been this underlying sense of frustration of, of, of having your treaty right constantly being criminalized mm. or people um, characterizing it as, as a criminal activity. Mm. Um, I once, the, when I was there covering the announcement for Svega Negedi launching uh, the moderate livelihood fishery down in Solnierville, it was a sense of, um, of celebration of being able to practice your treaty right and, and, and to have your whole community behind you. I mean, there is more than 300 people who actually gathered at mm-hmm. the wharf for that announcement. Right. And immediately, and, and like I said, there was a sense of support. People were cheering. They were on the wharf cheering. And, and as soon as the boat started going out, um, you, you can hear people on the wharf and all, who were standing on the rocks down there, you know, just cheering and, and, and being really happy. But as soon as they cut to the waters, you saw the, the, the non-Indigenous commercial fishermen um, just off the waters there um, protesting their fishery. Mm. And, and that's where sort of the conflict was, was, was happening for, I would say, probably for the first few days of that fishery where, you know, it, it wasn't so much you see. It wasn't like what you saw in Burnt Church 20 years ago where it was DFO that was hauling out traps. Right. This time it was the non-Indigenous fishermen who were doing that to um, Mi'kmaq fishermen's traps. So along with that mood... Uh, is there, I know, that, and it always comes up about the, for instance, the non-Indigenous fishers are, are saying they're concerned about the the effect on the stock of, of the lobster. Is that, a, is that a real concern, do you think? Um, it, it's, it's a concern that's a really difficult to defend mm. because in St. Mary's Bay and in the Bay of Fundy, um, they're... they're they, <laughs> There, there is no um, lobster isn't an endangered species in that bay mm. at all. Mm. Um, there are um, many um, non-indigenous um, fishermen there who hold commercial lobster licenses um, and they can, you know, that, that allows them to have at least up to 300 traps put into the bay. Com- compare that to uh, a fisherman from Sebaganegadi with a moderate livelihood um license where they're only being allowed to have 50 traps per boat or 50 traps right. per license. And, you know, it's, you, you kind of see where the inequality is, is there. And like I said, there lobster is not an endangered species in that area at all. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as ELMNTFM and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element, Element, Element FM. My guest on the show is Maureen Gugu. She is an award-winning journalist from the Indian Brook First Nation, and, and that's in Nova Scotia. And we're talking about the uh, East Coast uh, Indigenous fishery that is going on and has been in the news of late and uh, continues to be in the news as it develops. Uh, Maureen, th- the topic of a moderate livelihood, as we've been talking about, and, and that's one of the unknowns and, and one of the questions that continues to be unanswered in bringing this whole thing forward. 
the native and non-native fishers uh, butting up against each other. We've heard about the non-indigenous fishers uh, making their side of the story. How would you say their relationship is on the whole? Is it an issue between the non-indigenous and indigenous fishers at the best of times? Or are they, you know, do they get along fairly well other times? Well, you don't hear about these conflicts happening um, during the regular commercial fishing season. And I should say my First Nation community, Indian Brook First Nation, Sebaganegity is all in one. Um, they have licenses in that same area to commercially fish for lobster mm-hmm. in that area. So, you know, so, in a, you know, our community has launched a moderate livelihood fishery, but they also have licenses for the commercial fishery. Mm-hmm. And that commercial fishery down in that region, um, in, in one LFA area, it starts like in, in mid-October and then, then the other fishery begins, um, I, I believe it's like the last Monday or Tuesday of November. For me, um, it, it seems like both parties seem to have an issue with the federal government and its reluctance to, to, to sit down and define what a moderate livelihood means. Um, you, know, it, it, you know, the non-Indigenous fishermen are frustrated with DFO for not doing that. And, and the same with the, with the Mi'kmaq leaders. They, you know, they have an issue with DFO. So a lot of this conflict can be related to the federal government and its reluctance to define what a moderate livelihood means. So what is being done in that regard that you are aware of to resolve that and to come up with something? If both, if both uh, the Indigenous and non-Indigenous fishers are pointing to DFO about this explain and define a moderate livelihood, that's where the issue lies. Uh, what, what's going on to, to reach that end? Well, like, like I said earlier, that, they did, that DFO did hire a federal negotiator to sit down with First Nations to do that. But obviously, like in Nova Scotia, I can say that those talks have reached an impasse. Mm-hmm. And from my understanding is that the, the First Nations are, are not waiting for DFO to define it. They're going to define it. For the past summer, um, Budladak worked on its management plan for, for, for most of the summer, um, which resulted in them launching their own fishery on Treaty Day, which was October 1st. Um, so they're not waiting for DFO anymore. They're just they're going to um, define moderate livelihood for themselves um, through um, through through um, drafting up their own management plans. Mm. And as you mentioned, so, they, they they have brought forward this offer, and I think it was similar to one that they presented some time ago. When you were talking about eighty-seven million dollars and and those kind of things, but they also wanted them to stay. Uh, within the commercial fishery uh, and and promise to do so for the next 10 years, um, and, but just just don't fish outside of the season. From my understanding of this, it's just, um, it's, it, it seems like a, a deja vu. It seems mm. a repeat of what happened 20 years ago. Mm. You know, First Nation leaders have heard this line before. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, don't do this while we, you know, while we define this. Um, I, I guess for me as a journalist, um, covering this story, um, one of the questions I have, and, and one that I'm, I'm, you know, I'm trying to trying to figure out is like, why isn't um, Crown Indigenous Relations and Northern Affairs Canada not at the table as well? Mm. I mean, this is an issue not just dealing with Department of Fisheries of Ocean. This is also dealing with um, the federal government mm-hmm. and the issue of treaty rights and the issue of implementing treaty rights. 
And the, the, the question that seems, like I said, you know, sitting and mulling this issue for about a week, I, I wonder why, why aren't they sitting at the table? Why isn't Minister Bennett sitting at the table with them? You know, this, this, this deals with not just a right to fish and it's not dealing with just commercial fishery. This is dealing with a treaty right. A lot of people, there's a lot of misunderstanding about what the treaty right to fish for moderate livelihood means. Mm -hmm. I mean, as soon as the Supreme Court of Canada came down with that decision, it recognized that that's a treaty right. Once that, that, once they recognized that, that became a constitutionally protected right. You know, mm-hmm. when you look at how, you know, and, and when you look at that, I mean, rights come before the privilege to fish. Mm. Commercial fishermen have licenses to fish. That's a privilege. You know, mm-hmm. Mi'kmaq, um, Wollastook and Passamaquoddy people in this region have a right to fish, you know, and, and, and there that's that's where the misunderstanding is happening. You know, it's a right versus a privilege. Who has mm-hmm. the privilege? Who has the right? Which one do you need to deal with first? And right. for 20 years, the, the right hasn't really been uh, addressed at all. And it also sounds like to me that, you know, that the federal government doesn't want to deal with that right for the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. So it makes you wonder, do they really want to? Because then you're when you're talking about another 10 years, you're talking about 30 years since the decision yes, came down. Exactly. And you're still not defining what a moderate livelihood means. You have to wait another 10 years for that. Mm-hmm. I, I think a lot of uh, First Nation uh, communities in this region are are really um, are, are you know twenty years is too long. They they want to practice their their right. I guess it goes back to the other question that we always hear in in issues like this: is if it, if the shoe were on the other foot, uh, how long would the commercial fishers have to put up with and, and not get an answer to the question that they were asking? Um, now, the, the, the other thing, I guess, that I'm not sure if this is a little off topic, uh, Maureen, but there was uh, an election recently. Um, uh, Chief uh, Paul Pro- Prosper w- was elected to the Assembly of First Nations as vice chief. Oh, regional. He, he is the chief of Bucknagag, which is uh, a Mi'kmaq community that's close to Antigonish. Mm-hmm. Um, he was recently uh, elected to, to be the regional um, the AFN regional vice chief mm-hmm. um, for Nova Scotia and the Mi'kmaq communities in Newfoundland. Mm-hmm. Um, that happened. Um, that happened in, in early September. So, because he was elected mm-hmm. um, as vice chief, he's in the process of stepping down as as chief of his his own community. Ah, okay. It is how does that affect things at all? Does it uh, with him moving positions? Well, I mean. Chief, from my understanding with Chief Prosper, he's very, you know, he has a strong background in law. He's a lawyer. Hmm. Um, he um, graduated from Dalhousie University, and he's worked with uh, various uh, First Nation organizations and tribal organizations um, in, in in the region before he uh, decided to run for office in 2013 and became the chief of his home community. Um, he's worked He's he's worked in the area of um, of Mi'kmaq rights. Mm. Um, a, a lot of that one of the one of the the organizations he'd worked for was the Treaty and Aboriginal Rights Research Center, and that organization was actually responsible for doing the research that was used as evidence in um, the Donald Marshall mm. um, 
uh, fishing case mm. that went to the Supreme Court where they had to actually dig dig into the historical uh, documents and, and, and talk about the treaties that were signed between the Mi'kmaq and the British Crown. Mm. So he has a really strong background in that sense. And when I spoke with him shortly after he... Uh, he was uh, elected as vice chief. Um, he said that implementing Mi'kmaq rights is um, is a priority for him, mm. and that uh, he he would like to to advocate for that as um, as a vice chief at the national level, serving with the, the Assembly of First Nations. Right, uh, Maureen. Uh, what is your concern uh, looking to the future? Just quickly, as you look look at this issue. Um. My cons—I'm I, not sure if I would have a concern, but I mean, I, I would hope that people who are, you know, unfamiliar with this issue, would take the time and read the treaties. Mm. I mean, I think if people sat down and read the Peace and Friendship Treaties, which they can find online fairly easy, you know, you'll, you'll start to understand where Mi'kmaq people are coming from mm -hmm. and when and what do the treaties say and when you read the treaties I mean I, I've read them several times and each time I read them I, I you know I, I it, it reaffirms my position is that they're just um, guidelines for how to coexist with one another you know mm. you know it it, it 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 paved the way for the settlers to come to come to this part of the province and and settle here so so and it also guaranteed that the Mi'kmaq peoples can still continue their way of life and when you you know and when you put it in the full context the peace and friendship treaties paved the way for what is today Canada mm. you know treaties are signed between two you know two parties they're not just for Mi'kmaq people right you know, they're also for the, you know, the, the settlers who came to this, mm -hmm. came to North America back then. And, mm -hmm. and I think people just kind of need to put that into perspective. And once you put that into perspective, then you have a better understanding of, of where Mi'kmaq people are coming from when it comes to exercising their treaty right. All right. Well, Maureen, thank you so much for uh, joining us on the show and putting into perspective some of what is happening out on the East Coast with the East Coast fishery and the Mi'kmaq fishers uh, that we are hearing about in the news. We want to really thank you for, for coming on to the show. And before we go, I also want to mention that Maureen, is, uh, she has her own news, news service out on the East Coast, and you can, uh, you can follow her there and see the news that she covers uh, daily, weekly, and, and all the things that she's doing out there. And uh, Maureen, how do you pr properly pronounce that? Oh, you mean my, uh, my website? Yeah. Uh, my website is called Google West News. Uh, Google Gwes in Migmo means owl, but it's also a variation of my own last name, yes. Gugu. Maureen, once again, uh, thanks so much, uh, Chimigwech, for coming onto the show and, and sharing your information that you have on this issue and bringing it forward. It would be great to have you back on, if you don't mind, at some future date to uh, stay on top of this issue and other issues that are happening out there on the East Coast. It would be my pleasure to uh, join your show again, David. That's Maureen Gugu. She is an award-winning journalist from the India Brook First Nation out in Nova Scotia. And once again, you can reach her if you want to follow her news. You can reach that at uh, gugugwets.com. That's spelled K-U-K-U-K-W-E-S.com. Stick around. We've got more coming up right after this on Moment of Truth. 
This is an encore presentation of Moment of Truth with David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto. And of course, anywhere across the country, if you download the Radio Player Canada app, Stephen Fonier is uh, the Director of Northern and Indigenous Studies at the Conference Board of Canada. Uh, we're here to talk about, uh, with Stefan, Indigenous Entrepreneurs on the Rise. Uh, first, Stefan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, uh, David. It's uh, great to be here. So, Stefan, if you don't mind me asking off the top, what does a Director of Northern and Indigenous Studies do at the Conference Board of Canada? Well, uh, we're actually, our group at the conference board is called uh, the Northern and Indigenous Communities Group. Mm. Uh, but what we do, uh, you've captured it largely in the studies uh, um, mm. c- uh, component there that you just kind of highlighted. What we do is uh, conduct research. That's uh, sort of fundamentally our, our kind of main um, area of work. So quantitative and qualitative research. And of course, we focus largely on um the uh, the issues that are confronting northern and indigenous communities, but we use sort of the, the the notion of communities also broadly. So it's also about other groups and organizations and whatnot that have interests um, or that have work um, uh, across uh, northern and remote Canada, and we also convene. Uh, so we bring folks together to do, to talk about uh, the research that we we do and to help us conduct that research. Uh, and uh, so there's a lot of convening activities, meetings, conferences, mm. summits, and things like that. And just for people that, that are not familiar with the Conference Board of Canada in general, what is the, the modus operandi of, of the Conference Board? So much like the Indigenous and Northern Communities area, we are um, we're a think tank. So the Conference Board of Canada is a research institution. It's what a lot of people might refer to mm. as a think tank. Mm. And same thing, they you know as a as a whole, we conduct quantitative and qualitative research, and we uh, we we um, uh, engage in convening activities. And the purpose is to move decision making forward, uh, especially at the executive level, but also down through to uh, the grassroots level, we hope, uh, but try to move decision-making forward in Canada around key issues, inform policy development, um, and so on. Okay, great. Uh, thanks for that. Um, now, also, when you say north, northern, you know, communities, northern uh, Canada, what, what does that mean to you? How do you define that? Yeah, that's a great question, uh, because we have... Uh, a relatively unique understanding of the North, and that's based, again, on all the different organizations we work with, so public, private, Indigenous, uh, not-for-profit, academic. Um, they, they, they fund a lot of the research work that we do, so we try to work with them in terms of addressing the issues based on their interests. And in terms of those interests, the North, for, for us and for those organizations, comes well down into the provinces. Hmm. So it's basically the northern extents of all of the provinces outside of the Atlantic provinces, with the exception of Newfoundland and Labrador, uh, because Labrador and Nunatsiavut uh, are included. Hmm. Uh, but the north of the uh, the rest of the provinces uh, are in our definition of the north, and then of course so are the the territories. Mm. So, like like physically, if you're looking at a map, like down the bottom of James Bay, or how, how, like yeah, even lower than that actually. Oh, yeah. So the line, if you want to uh, you know look at Ontario, mm. um, the line would cut across basically the north shore of Lake Superior. Okay, it, Sudbury just barely misses the line. Mm. Um, it, it cuts across just sort of north of Sudbury. But yeah, so even further south than, uh, mm. than sort of the base of James Bay there. Yeah, it's interesting to get that definition because everybody has, I think, a different idea of what north means, you know. Uh, Canada is such a vast country and, you know, some people might be thinking north is Nunavut, you know, and, and not coming down any further than that. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. That's actually something that we confront in terms of our work all the time. Most mm. people do think it's the territories, mm. but I, you know, our the logic, I guess, behind this, and and you know, the logic that that drives our, you know, our, our clients and members and the organizations we work with to to understand the North uh, in the way I just described it is that you know, there, there, frankly, there, there's probably more in common in some ways with, for instance, Northern Ontario uh, and or Northern Manitoba in terms of the fly-in remote communities there with Nunavut than there is between Yukon, which has only one flying community in the entire territory in Nunavut. So uh, so in many ways, there's a lot of commonalities between the Norse, northern extents of our provinces and, and places like Nunavut and the Northwest Territories. Yeah, I'm glad you described that because because most people would not consider that, that there is that connection. And, and, and that's why I'm glad we're talking about the remoteness and that uh, the fly-in communities. Uh, again, uh, people may not understand that that uh, that c- does come into the provinces, uh, and there are a lot of fly-in communities that still don't have access. Uh, maybe in the winter time, with uh, with frozen uh, lakes, uh, or or maybe uh, those kind of things. But um, yeah, as you say, a lot of remoteness. Now, entrepreneurs in the north, in indigenous entrepreneurs in specifically. Um, on the rise, you, you, you're finding that there's a rise in entrepreneurship, uh, specifically with Indigenous uh, people in the north? Yes, absolutely. We've been seeing a rise in terms of Indigenous entrepreneurship for quite a few years now. Well, um, the 2016 census, the last census there, um, or sorry, uh, yeah, the previous census highlights um, that trend quite well, but it started before then. And um, yeah, we're, we're not only seeing an increasing um, sort of increasing participation in entrepreneurship on the part of Indigenous uh, people, but also increasing interest in participating in entrepreneurial kind of endeavors. So, uh, so yeah, that was sort of the, you know, the, the, the point that, that uh, was of interest to us in terms of launching the, the research that we recently undertook on this, on this topic. Do you have any sense of why there is an increase that, that you're seeing? At this point in time, uh, yep, we there, there are basically three sort of reasons, and that was one of the the two kind of main research questions. Uh, coming back to what we do at the conference board, uh, <laughs> research. So one of the two research or you know, questions that really kind of underpin this was, what are the reasons mm. for this? Why do we see this this uptake? Um, particularly at a time too when, for the rest of uh, you know the country, in terms of non-indigenous people, there's actually. Uh, there hasn't been a concomitant rise, so this is unique to, mm. to indigenous uh, uh, groups and people. So there are three reasons that really kind of jumped out. Uh, the first one was financial reasons, and, and it's a pretty simple uh, explanation. It's really, you know, when there are no other options available, as is unfortunately often the case within that northern remote context, especially those flying communities we're referring to, individuals will often look to generate income or tend to, to look to generate income and, and find financial security uh, through entrepreneurship. So owning and running a business can, you know, can be an opportunity to employ uh, not, not only yourself, but others within the community and, and in effect securing sort of a broader set of livelihoods. But that's an interesting reason. And it does highlight, again, sort of the, the gaps, the social inequalities, the lack of opportunity that these can, communities often need to face. Um, so that's that's one of the main reasons. There there are two others. One was uh, per, uh, personal agency uh, and reasons of self determination is how we kind of frame um, that second set of reasons. So so that's really about choosing one's own path. Um, you know, entrepreneurship gives people the personal autonomy to take part in the economy in a variety of, of, of ways. They can apply their own skills. 
their knowledge, their interests and talents with, uh, with a way of making a living. And again, this kind of sort of stands in, in opposition in a sense to what, um, what is typically available um, within that Northern World context in terms of employment to people. So when there is employment, it's often uh, in government, uh, local government, sometimes mm -hmm. regional government, and then also uh, in the natural resource sector. And of course there are other sectors, but those are the two prominent ones. Uh, and a lot of folks aren't interested in, in going down the, that mm. road. And they, they often, I think, see or some folks see that as almost an imposed mm. um, set of opportunities for employment. And so, again, entrepreneurship offers this uh, this chance at, uh, at pursuing a career that's a lot more meaningful and where folks can can pursue their own interests and, and leverage their talents. And then the final reason is community and culture. So um, I think that one sort of uh, speaks for itself, but entrepreneurship can obviously provide an opportunity for people to make a good living in a way that also allows them to, uh, to practice their culture. And it can pro provide a way of, of reconnecting um, individuals and their communities to culture uh, and or to, sh you know, to share and raise awareness about culture and trad traditional practices through business opportunities with outsiders, with, uh, with folks from, from elsewhere. Mm. You know, uh, something comes to mind when, when you're talking about those, the reasons behind this. Uh, and if I'm, I'm not mistaken, I think a lot of Indigenous people, or people that, that uh, I've associated with, uh, have a strong sense of that desire to, uh, to be, uh, to be entrepreneurs, to, to do the, to you know, uh, carve their own path, sort of, and 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 create that for themselves. I think that that's a fair uh, claim. I mean, obviously, it's a it's a very general one, but mm -hmm. I, I, you know, certainly in our work through the through uh, through the conference board, through the, the Indigenous Northern Communities area uh, across the country, you, you do hear that. Um, you know, one of the better stories I heard not too long ago um, was really about uh, the Clinket out in. Um, uh, uh, the Yukon and and north uh, northwestern BC there, um, and this long history of 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 you know trading and engaging mm. what they would refer to you know in terms of contemporary language as entrepreneurial activities, and so they really sort of highlight that point you know that we we come from a long tradition of mm. of entrepreneurs. Um, so, you know, business and, and entrepreneurship mm. comes quite naturally to us. And when I say us, of course, I'm, I'm referring to, to the Clinkit. Um, and that's not, that's not, you know, um, the sole purview of the Clinkit. It's uh, you hear that story in, in different regions across the country. So, yeah, I think, I think that there, there's something to that, that there, that entrepreneurship, you know, in many ways may be something that has historic or, you know, historically been a part of, uh, indigenous cultures in different parts of the country. Um, they'll probably not refer to, obviously, in those terms, uh, but it does come naturally to folks uh, as a result of that history now. The other thing that comes to mind is uh, is that I, I think, um, again, uh, from my own experience uh, from the Six Nations community, uh, a lot of people don't want to leave their home community uh, to go f find employment. They want to stay in their home community. Uh, thereby, uh, if there are limitations in, in terms of employment, then it comes back to the fact that well, if if the, if work isn't gonna, if I'm not gonna go to work, I have to bring the work to me. <laughs> One way to do that is maybe uh, to be an entrepreneur and create your own your own work for yourself somehow. And you're absolutely right. That's one of the things that uh, the research found was exactly that. So for when we talk about community and culture as that sort of th third reason for pursuing entrepreneurship, mm. um, 
that is absolutely a part of that that story is that folks are looking for ways to stay in community uh, to be able to you know remain with family and friends and and still to make a living uh, and again within that northern remote context when uh, there are not uh, when there's not much in the way of other options uh, entrepreneurship is an obvious uh, mm. sort of place to to gravitate to so right. absolutely that's that's something that came out in the research you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa that's 95.7 in Ottawa 106.5 in Toronto and anywhere across the country if you download the Radio Player Canada app type in those coordinates as well as ELMNTFM and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day 7 days a week also check out our SoundCloud and also our website at ELMNTFM uh, yes, .ca and uh, you can see all the things that we're doing uh, via social social media as well as check out our, our previous interviews and uh, find out more about uh, the, the people that work here, the on, on-air personalities, etc. Uh, speaking of personalities, uh, the person I have with me right now on the show, Stephen Fonnier, he is the Director of Northern and Indigenous Studies at the Conference Board of Canada. He's our guest here on A Moment of Truth right now. We're talking about Indigenous Entrepreneurship on the rise and uh, in north, remote and northern uh, Canada. Uh, Stefan, one of the things that, that also come to mind when we think about this, you mentioned a way, you know, entrepreneurship is a way of making a good, a good living. However, it, it comes at a cost. The cost is it's a lot of work. It, it, you, you know, you're on your own. Uh, nobody's there to, to you know, you're not relying on a paycheck. You have to make your own paycheck. Absolutely. Um, and again, you know, often within the context of northern remote communities, there's uh, additional kind of challenges that you wouldn't typically see uh, in more southern uh, locations around the country, and especially in urban southern locations. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's it can be a it be quite challenging, it can be uphill battle, and and a lot of work. Um, and and to your point, I mean, often at the local level too, there's not always um, a lot uh, of sort of support to draw on. Mm. Um, so in terms of skills and expertise and, and mentors and whatnot, uh, those things can be lacking at times in, in, the, in that northern remote context. So definitely a challenging road, uh, but can can be a compelling road too. In terms of the kinds of work that entrepreneurs are gravitating to, you mentioned cultural uh, things um, uh, at one point, but uh, tourism is, I think, increasing in the north, or it was up until COVID hit, I think. Indigenous tourism was on the rise. We actually did a study on that not long ago as well. And by not long ago, I mean maybe a little over a year ago. And yes, Indigenous entrepreneurship uh, across the north, um, or sorry, tourism, Indigenous tourism is on, on the rise. Um, now, the other thing when we speak of the North is costs, because the North is difficult to get to. It is not cheap to fly into communities in the North. Absolutely. When we talk about the challenges that we uh, were identifying through this more recent work on entrepreneurship, um, that was one of the ones that came out sort of front and center. It's a, there's a high cost of, of doing business uh, within these communities, and it's tied, exactly as you pointed out there, into the remoteness and isolation component. The fact that there are often no roads other than sort of the winter roads or uh, sea lifts, if we're talking about the very far north up in the territories, um, you know, people are reliant on that for moving goods if they want to move them cheaply. Otherwise, they got to fly them in. Mm. So in terms of, you know, getting product, equipment, basic business supplies, all that, 
absolutely it can be very expensive and that that creates uh, you know a significant and again an unusual challenge mm. uh, in terms of uh, entrepreneurship in northern remote Canada of course the other side of that is that it's expensive to get there it's just as expensive to get back uh, as well as get things out of those communities there are many many talented people in the north artists uh, carvers painters uh, many 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 kind of uh, these are all I'm assuming falling into the category of entrepreneurship and uh, um, they need to get their products to the south in order to to reap uh, 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 the financial reward for their work. Um, what were you finding out in in terms of that kind of uh, you know is there aid is there stuff that's becoming easier for the north to get products to the south for sale? So market access is um, a part of of work we're undertaking right now. Um, so this this piece that we're talking about here today, it's the first of two pieces. So mm. first, we wanted to kind of look at that landscape, um, you know, the northern remote landscape uh, and, and, and environment um, uh, in terms of how it, uh, it affects and applies to Indigenous entrepreneurship, Indigenous mm. entrepreneurs. And then, uh, you know, based on sort of what we were learning about uh, operating within that environment um, and the challenges that come come with operating in that environment and so on, we wanted to look at what kinds of supports are available to entrepreneurs that 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 effectively address and whether or not they effectively address you know mm. are there gaps in the whole support system mm. for indigenous entrepreneurs so market access is a part of that i i i can't really speak to it with too much uh, authority right now but yes i mean you you've hit it again on another point that i think is very relevant ensuring that goods can be moved uh, into into other markets um, is a challenge for for a lot of the reasons again you just stated uh, and it will be part of, of future research um, that we're well actually it's part of current research that we will be releasing uh, over the next few months uh, what kind of things were you seeing and hearing that maybe you found surprising in terms of uh, cre- the creativity that is going into the thinking for indigenous entrepreneurs that are looking to establish themselves uh, with uh, some kind of a business or or or, or uh, uh, supplying goods to to the south from the north, uh, you know that that kind of you know you, you see from you know necessity is is a great uh, is a great teacher and and you know a great way to motivate people to to be creative uh, did you have you did you come across anything in that regard so again that that might be a little bit more uh, in line with our, our work that's coming up but i can sure. talk a little bit about that from sort of our own experiences uh, through all sorts of research projects and mm. and through working with groups and communities on the ground throughout the north and you see yeah I'll, i just um you know, a lot of very interesting approaches and creative, to your point, approaches to uh, making things work, to to ensuring that, you know, entre- entrepreneurial endeavors do actually meet with success. Um, and so that's, you know, when we talk about entrepreneurship, again, we're talking about the, the, the kind of folks you were mentioning earlier, you know, from artisans and um, and and even and even sort of hunter gatherers and whatnot mm. in terms of sort of uh, business opportunities that can be associated with that all, all the way through to sort of more standard small businesses and up towards uh, even development corporations and whatnot sort of so but and when you look at the, those groups as a whole there's all sorts of interesting things going on and again uh, maybe to highlight sort of uh, what's going on in northwestern Canada there I mean in Yukon for instance uh, we see a lot of creativity in folks and organizations playing to the strengths of of either their communities um, or their talents and or, you know, even their location. So uh, an example that always jumps out for me is uh, Carcross Tagus First Nation in in, in Yukon. They um, 
they went down a road where they decided to um, build mountain biking trails. And they actually used youth <laughs> to build these trails, interestingly, <laughs> from around the area. Um, and now the, those trails have become um, uh, sort of sought out all around the world because they're, they're, they've been voted uh, among the best mountain biking trails uh, literally in the world. So, and associated with that was sort of a, a whole bunch of entrepreneurial activity that, that kind of coincided. So, you know, the town sort of built up kind of a cultural center with a, a fair amount of retail, small retail sort of shops setting up. And, and they take advantage of obviously folks coming into the area for mountain biking reasons, but also folks coming up uh, or in, I should say, from Skagway in Alaska, mm. uh, who are up on the tourism, uh, or sorry, on the, um, on the, uh, uh the you know the ships uh, mm. sorry coming up from um from southern uh, uh southern cruises, parts of the country like the there so bc and and and, and seattle um so, so cruise ships that yeah I, the cruise I ships to right. say yep. and they'll come in and and they'll actually come in as far as um as car cross tagish and and then you know uh, contribute fairly significantly to that local economy through all of those retail sort of uh, uh, businesses and whatnot so that's just one example mm. you know others playing to their strengths again and 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 trying to and this is true in northern ontario it's true all over frankly uh, northern remote canada where there's natural resource um opportunities and projects uh you know folks uh, despite some folks not wanting to be a part of that that sort of sector uh, you know a lot of indigenous entrepreneurs are quite savvy and shown themselves to be very successful in terms of taking advantage of the supply chains mm. associated with that sector and and the business opportunities there, the procurement opportunities there. Mm-hmm. Well, that, what a great example to give. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, mountain biking. Uh, I can just see the, that landscape uh, being perfect for, for that kind of thing. So, what, yeah, great idea on their part. Fabulous. Yeah. Have, have you had the pleasure to travel north? Yeah, I, I, yes, Absolutely. In various places. <laughs> no <more. laughs> yes, I, I, yes. I spent quite a bit of time, sort of, uh, in the north of the provinces and up in the territories, mm. uh, uh, especially through my current career, but also as a kid, actually. Mm. Oh, really? Um, for yeah, just for personal and family reasons, uh, hiking and uh, and climbing. I used to climb when I was younger. So. Oh, nice. That's great. Yeah. Well, this kind of falls right in line for you. Then, in in some ways, you you have a lot of familiarity with the territories. Pardon the pun. Yeah, a there. fair amount. I mean, I don't want to overstate <laughs> that, but I've, yeah, definitely uh, have some some familiarity with the territories. Um, you, you know, uh, I had the pleasure of going up a couple of times years ago uh, up to uh, Iqaluit. I was there for about a week, and then I was in, um, if you know where Akfiat is, uh, uh, up on the uh, just above Churchill, way up there in, in Nunavut. Yep, absolutely. And uh, it was a week a week there, and it was nice to go in, in two different times of the year, uh, November. So it was getting into winter. I say getting into winter because one day I went outside uh, on this beautiful morning, uh, the sun shining, and I face, face froze in like 30 seconds, and I ran back in, and I went, geez, how cold is it out there? And they said, minus 44, and I went, minus 44, and they and they all looked at me like I was strange, and they said, what? It's not even, <laughs> winter hasn't even started yet, what are you complaining about? So, and then in the summer uh, in uh, Akviet, uh, June, and then there was still snow, uh, you know, six feet high, you know, on the banks and things, but within a week it melted very quickly. And it was interesting to be able to see, you know, both that. And also, uh, you know, I was there for the summer, so got to see um, it in, in, you know, the land of the midnight sun kind of thing, as well as mm-hmm. the winter with the sh- very short days. And it's interesting to see that because it gives you a different sense of, uh, of that reality. 
you know, when you can experience it and, and get a sense of what that, what that life is like. No, absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, and I think that, yeah, that's well put. Uh, and again, I mean, that's something again that you don't obviously get to experience in, in other locations uh, around this country, but also in many other countries. I mean, a lot of, I think, interest in Northern Mo Canada doesn't just come from from our domestic uh, from domestic sources from from here in Canada. Uh, there's a especially in the far north. There's a lot of interest coming from other countries around mm. the world. Mm. Um, uh, and unfortunately, right now, for for entrepreneurs involved in the tourism industry, um, that that interest is being significantly uh, undermined, as you, as you would imagine, mm. from COVID and the mm. fact that folks aren't traveling right now. So, it's actually a pretty challenging time. Sure. Um, and uh, hopefully, we see uh, supports uh, that are. I mean, there are supports coming to play, but you know, uh, let's hope that they work, and let's hope that uh, they're robust enough to to, to help. Um, um, support the uh, entrepreneurs as they work through the what is a challenging time right now. I, I think it'll be interesting to see once the infrastructure allows for a, a much better uh, internet connection for people in the north as well to see how that will affect uh, affect uh, entrepreneurship in, in the north. Um, as we all know it's it's difficult up there in many of the communities. No, uh, you hit on again uh, a really important point. It's. Um, uh, connectivity, uh, you know, good, good internet, high-speed internet, as we know, is is uh, is is pivotal, mm. uh, or I think most of us would consider it to be pivotal in terms of being able to function as a business and be competitive as a business in today's uh, world. Right. Uh, and bandwidth connectivity in many communities can be quite poor, so it's just yet one more challenge that uh, a lot of um, entrepreneurs in northern remote communities. Uh, need to deal with, need to find ways around, need to be creative in terms of how they, how they address it. So, yeah, absolutely, connectivity is uh, a big consideration on the entrepreneurship front. Uh, Stefan, anything we haven't touched on that you think is important to mention in this in this uh, in this endless topic before we end uh, finish our conversation? No, I mean, again, I just think uh, you know, for us uh, and the work that we were doing, it was. Uh, I think it's just important to acknowledge that this uh, that this context is really challenging, but at the same time, folks are uh, are having success. Um, and again, it, it plays into that sort of creativity, that that's that strength-based sort of approach to uh, to trying to pursue these kinds of opportunities. Uh, but at the same time, we I think we need to acknowledge how challenging that environment is. And 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 again, our next piece will look at this. But what do we need to be doing then to help support entrepreneurs within that context? Uh, I think that's sort of the key question at this point. Great, Stefan. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. We thank you for joining us on Moment of Truth today. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been very. Uh, I hope other people have enjoyed hearing about this and and uh, sort of getting their eyes looking to the north there uh, and and thinking about that. You know, the other thing comes to mind is when I was up there, I saw a map of Canada. What was interesting, and that's the other thing that you don't get a sense of, is 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 how the how Northerners perceive the country and the world because they look at it very differently. Because it was a map of Canada, but it was from the north looking south. If you, oh, if, totally, yeah. You know, and when you think about the north, you know, uh, the north of our country is again. If we use the line that we use at our 
uh, at the Conference Board of Canada uh, mm. to define the north. I mean, that's four-fifths of our land mass. Mm. So while our population is is sort of definitely concentrated down here, the land mm-hmm. is up there, so to speak, you yeah. know, and, and yeah. yeah, it gives you a very different perspective. Right. Stephen Fournier, he is the Director of Northern and Indigenous Studies at the Conference Board of Canada, has been uh, our guest and my guest here on Moment of Truth today. And we thank you, our listeners, for uh, tuning in as well, right here on Moment of Truth. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element, Element, Element FM.